In this month's episode, we're going to take a deeper look at that phrase, often uttered from first responders to consultant doctors the world around. Scene safety BSI. Scene safety BSI and other irrelevance that you may stay at the start of OSCEs. Welcome to the Secretary Survey, the Irish Pre-Hospital Podcast. Welcome to the first episode of the Secondary Survey Podcast. This podcast has been developed for all levels of pre-hospital care responders and practitioners. We plan to release a podcast monthly and will be a wide ranging subjects from community first responders to advanced paramedics and beyond. We're going to bring it back in this episode to the beginning, to the very start of every call, and that is scene safety. The first thing taught on every first aid course throughout the world is scene safety. And we're going to look at it from all levels, from the pre-hospital information sent to us from the very start of the call all the way through. So where does it start? The dispatch information can appear on our mobile data terminal in the ambulance. This mobile data terminal, or the MDT, can also show us the types of scenes that we may be entering into. In some calls, after the dispatch code, there can be a letter, which means many different things. V for the patient may be violent, or W for weapon. If we see these letters and are aware of our scene safety, we can dispatch our other emergency service colleagues, like on Garda Shia Khanna. So Stephen, where do you think scene safety starts? Thanks, Joe. Yeah, I suppose scene safety really is going to start before we even get on scene. When I'm going to call, I'm often thinking about what we're going to, where we're going, who I'm with, who else is going to the call. And I've I've been doing this for a long time, and I suppose I've come across something recently, which I think really puts it together in a nice kind of form. So Cliff Reed and a couple others put together this this thing called a zero point survey, and it really succinctly puts together what we probably all do, certainly in a professional sense, when we're going to a call, and something that we should probably all be doing in general. And the zero point survey pretty much looks at the point before that you get to the patient, and then there's a bit about the patient as well. So the Zero Point Survey acronym is STEP UP, and it stands for yourself, the team, the environment. When you start treating the patient, you're talking about the patient, you're talking about updates and make sure your priorities. And you repeat that then as the incident develops. So I suppose going back to the self, the important, as we've all kind of been taught from the first first aid class you go to, so scene safety is important. And our self is important. So we look after ourselves first, our team, our equipment, and then we look after our patient and then the public. So it's really important that we make sure that we're ready to deal with the incident. And at the end of the day, we're all human. And there are many factors that relate to our readiness. And one of the acronyms that Cliff Reed et al. mentioned in their zero point survey is the I'm safe acronym. And it's basically it's a rapid physical readiness checklist that talks about illness medication or other drugs, stress, alcohol, fatigue, eating and elimination. So I suppose if you think back to any time where you're at an incident or if you're doing anything and if you're suffering from an illness or if you're on medication or if you're under stress, if you're under the influence of alcohol, fatigue, if you're hungry or if you need to eliminate waste, they're all going to have effects on your performance. So it's important to maybe 
make note of that yourself and even share that with your your crewmate so on the way to the call i might be going talking to my crewmate saying look i'm you know i'm wrecked tired you know i'll shift and can you just keep an eye on this for me because you know this is our seventh call of the day or whatever or we haven't had lunch today we're hungry so like let's take an extra effort to make sure that what we're doing is we're watching each other's back and we should be doing that all the time but it's important that we just maybe mention that when we're in particular identified times where we're at particular risk of things like that so the i'm safe acronym is, is quite a handy checklist just to go through that so how do we deal then with if we've identified that we're maybe stressed or maybe we're hungry or tired so one of the things i deal with i suppose is, is talking talking to my crewmate sharing my mental model so on the way to the call i might you know mention what differential diagnosis i'm thinking about i might chat with him or her what's going through their minds what do they think might be going on the call using the mdt information that we have to maybe pre-prepare ourselves for what to expect and that's obviously not without its risks which which kevin is going to mention later on but then to try and just get ready so that when we arrive on scene that we're mentally prepared and we've got a mental shared model of what to expect so that if i forget an element of treatment or if i get tunnel vision i'm trying to do something that my crew maybe will have hopefully in in their mind what was the the plan and they'll be able to either bring me back on track or potentially do some of the things that we were talking about in the, in the process another thing which is really helpful i suppose sometimes you go to a call and we've all had that call if you think back the the worst call you could think of and you get a little bit on edge you get a bit stressed you might lose focus and something that some people think is quite useful is this breathing technique called square breathing. You breathe over a four second square. So you breathe in over four seconds, hold your breath over four seconds, breathe out over four seconds, hold your breath out for four seconds and repeat that then. And that is sort of a mini meditation just to refocus your mind and just to calm yourself down and bring you back to the moment. And it can be really helpful maybe before you get to those calls where you're a little bit stressed because maybe you haven't come across before or Maybe you've come across before and the last time you didn't have a good outcome or potentially something went wrong for you. Uh, so there's lots of reasons why you could be stressed going to a call and it's important to identify that and maybe try and, and handle that by either sharing that with your crewmate or by maybe breathing through it. So once we're, we're prepared ourselves, we're going to think about our team and our team might just be yourself and a crewmate. It might be just yourself because you're you're at an RRV. It might be yourself, a student and a crewmate. Or it might be two ambulances or an ambulance and response guard, a fire service, coast guard, the guardie or the police service, mountain rescue. There's lots of people that can be part of our team. And it's important, I suppose, when we work in ad hoc teams that we identify the roles and we identify a leader early on. In general, I suppose that scenes, uh, certainly RTAs and outdoor scenes, the fire service will take control of a scene to make sure it's safe. So at an RTA, generally, if the fire service are in attendance, they'll look after the scene safety and it's up to them to decide whether a scene is safe or not. And as medical professionals and medical practitioners, our, our job is to look after the clinical care of the patient. So we take a cl more clinical role in that circumstance. But there are times outside of the urban the urban centres in the rural that potentially the ambulance service could be the first on scene. So it's important that while we may be first on scene, that we identify roles. And even between a small team of just two of us, we, we need to identify roles. Now, that's normally done pretty standard that whoever is attending generally is the clinical lead and whoever is, is supporting or who's driving the ambulance at the time will be supporting that the, the attendant or the clinical lead. 
Now, there are some times where that doesn't quite happen. If the attendant for the call is, is a paramedic and, and their supporting practitioner is an AP, then perhaps sometimes like that role can be shifted back to the, the AP if it's required. And I suppose as an AP, the clinical lead will always rest on the advanced paramedic. Ultimately, that doesn't mean that at every call, an advanced paramedic needs to be the clinical lead. So having that discussion maybe beforehand about what roles you foresee when you're, where you're getting on scene, depending on the call, what equipment you're going to think about, you know, using for the call, who's going to get what equipment. So if you're going to a cardiac arrest, you know, what equipment the attendant is going to bring in, what equipment the support practitioner is going to bring in, if you're going to be first on scene or, or not. So all these roles are going to be allocated and a leader identified. And if we turn up then on scene and there is already an ambulance crew on scene or the fire service, that we identify the leader, the incident commander, I suppose, or the, the team leader or whoever is in charge or running the incident when we get there. So obviously, if it's the fire service, generally, the incident commander of the fire service will normally have a tabard on them with incident commander. They'll normally be wearing a white helmet or perhaps a yellow helmet with two black stripes. At the fire service, I suppose, are very good at identifying themselves in operational leadership roles. Whereas with the ambulance service, sometimes our paramedic service in general, there, it isn't normally as clear cut as that as there's many people at scene. Sometimes the clinical leader may not be acting in a leadership role because they're worried about the clinical care of a patient. So that leadership role might actually fall to someone of a, a different clinical grade who might be more suited to a, kind of a team leader role, making sure that everything is being organized with regards to logistics, that people are being kept safe and all these kind of things. So that's all on the way to the call. And so you can see, you know, these are all things. So it's not it's not as if, you know, on the way to the call, we're just sitting, having chats and drinking coffee. Although sometimes I'm sure we do. It's important that we kind of get go through these points or minds that when we arrive at those serious incidents that we, we have a plan and we're, we're prepared ourselves for when we arrive. And then when we arrive, I suppose, what do we do? And the first thing I always do when we arrive to a call is I look out the windscreen. I look out at what I see. It's important to be, you know, there's nothing, uh, there's no rocket science or there's no, no complicated formula how we do this, but even just looking out the windscreen and coming up with this kind of windscreen report. And I suppose that term comes from London Ambulance Service. And I think they did a bit of work back a few years ago when they created the resilience teams that looked at how their performance is during critical incidents. And London by its very nature, is a big capital city in, in the UK, which, which has seen a lot of critical incidents throughout the years and big major incidents that the ambulance service have had to respond to. And that's given them a lot of experience from how crews respond and how crews react to such incidents. And and one of the things they identified early on was that was the messages coming back from the initial crews were sometimes delayed or non-existent, or they weren't getting the information that was required to maybe get a good sense of what was happening on scene. So they looked into this a bit more and they, and they just found there was a bit of hesitancy around sending methane reports and the, the structured communication that's required, I suppose, under the major incident framework, which is the same in Ireland. Uh, we have the methane report, which you sent to control. So they created this thing called a windscreen report. And it's very simple. It's basically describe what you see out the windscreen when you arrive to control before you leave the vehicle. And I think that's a really, really nice little point. Just remember that even if you've driven up to scene and you see this terrible scene unfolding in front of you, and it could be the worst thing you've ever seen if it's, it's a major incident, thinking back to the incidents in London, then 
having the wherewithal to come up with a full beatdown message sometimes can be maybe just take too much bandwidth. So just describing what you see is is probably enough. And I kind of use that then to roll back a little bit. I use that in my own mind to go through sizing up the scene. So when we arrive on scene, I kind of look out the windscreen and what do I see? Is there someone outside the house with their their bags waiting, ready to go? Or is it someone frantically waving, waiting for you to come in? Is there a car in the ditch? Is there people walking around very comfortably at scene? Or is there a bit of panic? Or is there any obvious dangers when we arrive? So we talk about the the Sydney HEM service have a very nice document on scene safety. And one of the big things, they work on a paramedic doctor model. And one of the big things that they talk about is how the paramedics are best suited to manage and size up a scene. Because while we all as professional clinicians pride ourselves in our clinical ability, and I don't think I've ever met someone who's not involved in pre-hospital care, be that from CFR up to advanced paramedic, that don't pride themselves in their clinical care. And it's also, it's always the clinical cases we talk about when we're talking about stuff, when we meet up. And no one really talks about the the stuff which is really uniquely to the paramedics and, and to other pre-hospital providers is how we operate in a, in a chaos and an unknown scene. And we're very good at creating calm within chaos. So when we arrive on scene, we're working in an inherently unknown environment. It's not, we're not working in a hospital which is controlled. We're working potentially anywhere outside of a hospital, be that the side of the road, up a mountain, a lakeside, fishing boats, islands, houses, and everywhere in between up. And it's important that we can assess those scenes and do a dynamic risk assessment to prepare how we proceed. And the Sydney uh, HEMS use this kind of three-letter acronym, P-E-E, and it stands for People, Equipment, and Environment. So the people, again, you know, how many patients are involved, what team is there, who else do we need equipment wise? What equipment do we have? What do we need? And then the environment. So where where are we? You know, are we on the side of a road? Is the road still alive or is the traffic stopped? Are we at the side of a quay? Are we at the side of a cliff? Are we in a house? Are we in an apartment? Is there good lighting? Do we have space? Is there any dangers nearby? So if we were going to a house, who's inside the house? Do we have an exit out of the house? Noise. So if you're in an industrial area or things of that, you know, so noise, all these things affect how we treat and our, our situational awareness as well can be affected by the environment. So that's really important things to talk about with regards to the zero point survey before we even touch the patient. And I think that's really a really nice point to to settle on there. So I suppose, Joe, from your point, I know you're involved in the CFR scheme locally. How does it maybe differ for the CFRs when they're going up to as a volunteer service who maybe don't do this as their everyday? Yeah, so the CFRs, I think from a scene safety point of view, again, it's the moment the phone call or the text message comes into the phone that we have the equipment prepared, the car is ready to go, we have our PPE in the car. And when the text goes, that we have to remember from a scene safety point of view and from our safety point of view and other road users that we are driving under normal road conditions. There's no lights, there's no sirens on the cars. It's our own personal vehicles. We respond to our local community and help our local community in with cardiac arrests, strokes, choking and chest pains. So, and there's thousands of community force responders around the country and hundreds of responder groups and they're supported by the HSE as well. So, the idea that we're driving in our own car and that we need to get there as soon as possible, especially for the, the cardiac arrests. 
but we have to remember that we are driving under our own license our own insurance and that we have no right to you know break any speed limits or brake lights or anything but i think the research shows that the community force responders around ireland notice and are extremely well at doing it that there hasn't been a single road traffic collision in any of the CFR groups around Ireland. So I think that's a really positive outcome and that the, the CFRs understand that they are there for the community and that it's all about seeing safety for them. And I think even from a CFR point of view, the windscreen survey, in case you are called to something and it's, you know, it's on the side of a street or it's in someone's garden, that when you arrive on scene, looking out the window will give you a broad overview of the scene safety. And and if it doesn't feel safe that we, we don't go in, you know, that if you look out the window and it's absolutely pandemonium and you're on your own, that it's just not safe to go in, that you leave the scene and notify by the ambulance control that you won't be going on scene due to safety issues. And I don't think anyone would be uh, too upset about that. You're keeping your own safety first. There's also, I'm aware, Stephen, that you were looking into was driving on lights and sirens and the research around that. If you want to maybe have a quick explain that to us. Yeah, Joe, thanks. Yeah, it's, it's a very good point, I suppose, that transfers to ourselves who do it as professional drivers who drive every day going to respond to these calls that we still drive on our own license. No, we're obviously covered by the organization's insurance driving an organizational vehicle. But, you know, we still have to drive to arrive is, is, is always the, the, the mantra that we go by. I looked into a bit about the research behind driving on lights and sirens and, and what does it add to a call? Does, does it make a clinical impact to the outcome of patients? And I suppose the first thing to, to really highlight is there's, there's not a huge amount of evidence that exists behind this whole area of the ambulance service. And because of that, there's, and it's a lot of it's a very American-based research, but one, one study that looked into it looked at nearly five and a half or nearly six million calls from nearly 2,000 agencies in the, in the States. And 86% of the calls you were utilizing lights and sirens. But very few of those actually re- resulted in an intervention that was potentially life-saving. And when the research team stratified the calls by call nature, Cardiac arrest was obviously the highest frequency of potentially life-saving interventions at 45%, followed by diabetic problems. And it really, I suppose it really shows that of the you know 86% of calls that were responding to lights and sirens, only 7% really uh, had any intervention that was potentially life-saving. So I suppose, wh- what does that mean for us? And like the, the ultimate thing really is that we're deter- our determinant for driving and in emergency condition is our AMPDS codes. And as per the AMPDS system, we generally, uh, under the FEC guidelines, anything higher than a Bravo call recommends use of lights and sirens to respond to the call. And driving in, a, in an offensive manner or driving in a, in a manner to respond to an emergency situation adds its own risks and risks to ourselves and risks to the other road users um, because people i suppose when they see an ambulance on lights and sirens they're going to react in certain ways and not always the ways that you might expect or that the other roaders might expect so it can potentially lead to problems arising for ourselves so you know, while we might think that lights and sirens will save a lot of time, the the time isn't actually that much. I think I think reading another paper, I think in an urban area, uh, due to the the distance involved in in the actual response, you're only about saving about a minute, minute and a half, 
whereas in rural conditions where the response times are slightly longer, we're, we're maybe saving three and a half minutes. But that's still only a couple of minutes, really, in the grand scheme of things. And it really is, you know, is the risk and the hazard of driving lights and sirens, does that weigh up against the benefit of using them? So that's really something, I suppose, that we have to have all the back of mind. While we might be using lights and sirens, it doesn't really give us a license to, to drive however we want. And we're always going to be subject to the road traffic regulations with regards to careless driving and dangerous driving. So it's important that we, we drive with due care and attention, drive to the conditions that are there, and just be mindful that while we have the, the lights and sirens on, it's not going to save us that amount, amount of time. And of the time it does save us, potentially it won't have any outcome difference on the patient. So it's just important that we remember the mantra, drive to arrive. Uh, I think that's a really good thing to, to impart. And that, that goes from uh, CFR who's responding in their own vehicle or an off-duty responder who might be responding from a tech system or ourselves who are responding in marked up vehicles just to to drive to the conditions and not to uh, take any undue risks because the amount of time saved potentially isn't going to be a lot and the benefit of that saved time is questionable i suppose without and with the caveat that there isn't a huge amount of research out there and certainly a lot of the research is american based so it'd be an interesting thing maybe for someone to look into as time goes by as the research in irish pre-hospital care uh, grows um, it might be really good. So I, I hope that kind of helps uh, what you're thinking about, Joe. Yeah, absolutely, Stephen. And I think from a driving point of view, which it really is important that we, we drive to conditions. And I think that's a that's a really important point. For actual anyone that's interested, there's two fantastic presentations. One of them is up on the Smack Force rant. It's called Scene Safety is Bulls by Christina Heron. And it's a truly eye-opening and funny and touching, basically a rant about the way scene safety is taught. And basically that she was a person who was in the middle of the Boston bombing at the American and how scene safety was handled and how it's taught of this, you know, scene safety BSI and actually the reality in, in real life. So that's a really good talk if anyone wanted to look at it. Also, Dr. Victoria Brazil has a title, a fantastic talk again called So You Think You're a Resuscitationist. And this is uh, at the year after, sadly, Dr. John Hines uh, died up here in Dublin. And it was at the Smack Dub conference. And it's about the skills of reading the scene and understanding the safety around the scenes. It's a very funny talk about understanding scene safety. I was listening to the pre-hospital care podcast by the Medics Academy there yesterday. And they just recently published an episode. They're doing a major incident miniseries. And their first episode was about the 7-7 bombings in London with Ken Murphy's a critical care paramedic working in Australia and he would have been working with the London Ambulance Service at the time. And it was a really interesting conversation between the two of them. They're actually working together, the podcast host and this guy, Ken Murphy. And they're actually working together the day of 7-7 bombings. And they were just recounting what happened and what was going through their minds and stuff like that. And Ken brought up a really interesting point about scene safety, how even with everything that was going on, it was still at the forefront of his mind about when they were going down onto the tube tracks. It was going out to the underground and he was asking the firefighters and I assume the London Underground staff, was the electricity for the trains off? And everybody said, yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're sure the electricity's off. But even then he said like they, he wouldn't walk going near the third rail. He walked, he was walking the sleepers from the wooden sleeper to wooden sleeper. And it's amazing just how you, you just take that little extra step, I suppose, is the first thing. And then he said very, something very interesting kind of later on in the podcast about how at a certain point, 
you have to realize that you need to put yourself at a certain risk to help others because I suppose you were going into an unknown situation. There was possibly secondary devices. They were going to an underground tunnel that was a good distance in from the station. They weren't really sure about the whole situation. So there was only so much risk assessment anyone could do at the time. So like, I don't think any scene is 100% safe all the time. And I think the nature of our job, it's going to be something that we'll never fully achieve, be it an RTC, plane crash or anything like that. Like I just remember being at a plane crash and the fire is out. But when we're trying to get people out of the plane then, I remember one of the airport fire service guys and myself, we had an extrication board trying to get a patient out and we felt this heat on our arm and the two of us looked at each other at the same time. Both of us kind of said, well, if it catches fire again, we'll have a quick death. So like that's an extreme case, but you have an RTC in a motorway where cars are still whizzing past you. There's cars maybe on the other side of the motorway, rubbernecking. And then that can cause, you know, a danger to us as well. But we still have to treat people and look after them. It's, it's our job to do it. We try to do it as safe as we can. It's never going to be 100% safe. Yeah, so I mean, one of the big things that I noticed about that is the cognitive offload when you're dealing with a major incident. You'll always have someone who'll turn around and say, yep, 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 yep to anything you ask while their brain is actually catching up. Doing a scene survey, anything like that, it's so important to be present, if you know what I mean. Like, it's so it's such a dynamic thing that you can't necessarily trust all the information that you're getting at once. You have to compile it. Yeah, I agree. I think if you're arriving to a major emergency, I think, Stephen, as you said about the windscreen survey, I think that is a really important point discussed tonight. I think if you're coming across your first or your second major emergency and the methane message goes out of your head, I think getting onto the radio and just going, control, I have X, Y, and Z here. I have a load of patients. Just get me help. And I think that windscreen survey is something that maybe should be taught more widely within the pre-hospital environment to responders and practitioners. I think it's a very good idea. One of the things that they said on the podcast was they're actually sitting outside one of the stations, I can't remember which, they, they they got sent to a power surge at one of the stations. And as they arrived outside that, it was kind of a standby job. So can you, there's a power surge on one of the lines. Can you go standby in case there's anybody injured or whatever? According to them, it would be a regular occurrence in London. The next thing they heard was over the radio, okay, we've got an incident at one of the stations. Can you make ambulances 10? And that was the first thing that the thing. So even something simple like that, just over the open channel to say, look, we have bus versus car. I need, I need five ambulances. So guys, I actually think the windscreen report is really good as well. Methane message, you have to kind of structure that like you would an ash ice message. So when you get onto control and just say what you see, it's a lot easier and it's probably going to be a bit more accurate as to what's really going on, as opposed to kind of a very rigid formatted message. So I, I do definitely agree that the windscreen report is something that should be adopted in the Irish Ambulance Service more. I think it has a, a place and time. Like when you initially arrive on scene, I think the whole idea of it is that before you get out of the ambulance, you just tell control, we're here. This is what I see. And then you go out, do your bits. And then when you've kind of had time to gather your thoughts, then it's appropriate. Like there does need to be a meet and message in an, in an incident to get the important information across, as in once you've done your scene survey, how many casualties there are the exact location, any hazards and the egress and 
ingress of the location i suppose would be important because i suppose from a controls point of view they may not know that such a road is the best road to approach from and such a road probably the best road to leave from there definitely is a time and a place for a meet then message but yeah i think the windscreen report on a whole was a really valuable tool that would be really helpful to a lot of people i think going forward and i certainly use it every day even if it's it's not part of the message it's part of my mindset when i arrive on scene i'm, I'm, I'm looking at, at what i see out the windscreen and then kind of making a plan of action from there it's like a pre-alert really for a hospital it simplifies the information you're not going into too much detail but you're getting the main broad strokes across this is what we're dealing with this may or may not change it may or may not be worse or or better when i arrive at wherever but at the moment this is the information we need we have and i think that like i don't know about you guys and this is going to sound a little bit probably controversial but I think sometimes we're too, as a profession, we're very much into the mnemonics. And I think mnemonics are great when there's only a few of them, but when any kind of relevant information that we kind of try and put across is a mnemonic, that's when you're going to get cognitive overload. And that's when you're going to have the issues and miscommunications and things like that. I don't, you know, the windscreen survey is, is ideal really for every kind of pre-hospital practitioner. And then your Mythdown report, when you've kind of consolidated all the information that you have. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think that's a very good point, Kevin. Yeah, the structure approach needs to happen and it needs to happen soon after arrival. But I think just to get the initial help, to get the initial thoughts over to control, I think the Wien survey is a great idea. Yeah, hopefully it might be adapted into our practice more and more in the coming years. Yeah, I agree. Going back to what Steve was saying, he does it arriving on every scene. It doesn't have to be a major emergency or a major incident to use it. You know, you can arrive into houses and once you arrive up, if you see a couch kind of half hanging out the front door, you're kind of going, how did that get there and what's going on inside the house? So do you approach the house, you know, if you think it's a bit unsafe? So it can be used every day. It doesn't have to be big trauma or big accident to use it. So Viv, when you arrive on the scene, we look out for a lot of things. So can you talk us through what you're thinking about when you arrive on the scene from a scene safety point of view. Yeah, Joe, as pre-hospital care providers, I think experience comes with the automatic observance of the environment and the presence we are walking into. From when we leave the vehicle, we are looking at the terrain, observing for obstacles and areas that may pose a risk for us safely getting the patient and ourselves out of our premises. I remember hearing a story an emergency consultant told us about a patient's family member saying to him that the paramedics seemed a bit nosy looking around the house as soon as they arrived and even while they were treating their family member and that this man found it very odd. So the consultant was puzzled by this and then asked his friend within the ambulance service what that was about. And it was explained to him that the crew were actually doing a scene survey as soon as they arrived and already were planning ahead as to how to get the patient out of the house and looking for risks that may, may hinder them. On another note, I guess we're used to hearing about human factors in the medical world only when it relates to a negative occurrence or event. But I think in our job, there's a lot to be said in the positive about human factors. A recent paper I read about decision making said that experienced paramedics are very good at making decisions that seem based on their gut feeling or what is now known as Gestalt. Some colleges have come up with some modules or tools to assist the new paramedic in decision-making, whereas more experienced paramedics rely on their judgment and experience as opposed to these decision-making tools, be that a clinical decision or a decision about the scene safety. 
paramedics are very good at looking at their environment, doing risk assessments and working together at looking at how to treat patients in an uncontrolled environment and bringing organization and calm to what can be a chaotic environment. And they also look at safely getting a patient from an environment, be that outdoors or indoors. It involves constant observance, reassessment, and at times a bit of problem solving. Some environments are safe and others have their risks, be that environmental, logistics, or human involvement. And I think, Kevin, you have some things to go on about human factors. Yeah, so it's following on from your anecdotal story about the doctor and the family's interpretation of what we were doing when we were doing a scene survey. Once we get to the scene, we have to be able to keep ourselves safe. As Joe has said, the information on the MDT can give us a lot of information about the scene. Likewise, Steve is after talking about I'm safe checklists and how they can affect that. But how does the I am safe checklist affect how you interpret the information and can this affect the safety on scene? So what I'm saying there is, can you being tired, hungry, needing to go to the toilet affect how you interpret the information on the MDT? And can that actually affect how you interact then on scene? The short answer is yes, it can. With the MDT, we can get two things. So the first thing is a confirmation bias. And then when we arrive on scene, we can sometimes try and do an anchoring bias. And most of this is just subconscious. You're not really aware of it. But what are they? Confirmation bias is the tendency to search for, interpret, favor, and recall information that confirms or supports one's prior beliefs or values. So if you went out, you get a 31 Delta in the streets, query alcohol, you will automatically go to a particular place in your head when you get to the call. Anchoring bias then occurs when you rely too much on that pre-existing information. So as Viv was saying, human factors can affect our safety on scene and maintaining a safe scene. And that can be down to a number of factors, including communication. For example, in Viv's example, where the family thought that the paramedics were being dismissive of their family member. In reality, there was a dynamic scene or risk assessment being done. But a big problem that we have right now is PPE. Now, PPE is very, very good for keeping us safe from COVID. But unfortunately, it is having an effect or it can have an effect on your safety on scene in other ways. I'm just going to put this out to the guys. How much of our communication do we think is verbal versus nonverbal? A lot, like a lot of communication that we do amongst ourselves and as humans in general, I suppose, would be probably nonverbal. You know, you get the the arms folded or hands in the pockets or not interested, things like that, smiling, winking, all these kind of things. So definitely, I would, I'd certainly say, you know, in general, a lot of people is nonverbal. I'd say it's 80% nonverbal, 20% verbal. But I think that's an important point to make about the nonverbal, because even if you have a really sick patient and you're worried to show that you're not worried to the patient to keep them as calm as possible is really important as well. You know, you can say, oh, you're grand, you're grand, you're grand. But if you you appear to be very worried for them, that can pass on to them as well and make them feel a little bit uneasy. I think being very aware of our nonverbal cues is really important in the atmospheres. Yeah. So I think that that's the important bit there, Joe. I mean, you you're after saying about 80% of our, our communication is nonverbal. And there are some variants in what people actually say, but one that I picked up on 
was the 55-38-7 formula, which basically just breaks down all of our communication. And 55% they reckon is nonverbal, 38% is vocal. So how our tone reflects our interest or our, our feelings towards a particular case. And 7% is actually the words that we use. Now, when you think about the fact that we're in a complete barrier, we're wearing FFP3 masks, goggles, glasses, things like that. We actually cut out about 82% of our language or our communication is completely got rid of. If you add that on to what Stephen was talking about with doing an I'm safe checklist where we have a situation where you're, you could be tired, you could be hungry, you could be thirsty, you could be extremely uncomfortable after being in PPE all day. And you add in then your MDT diagnosis, which in a lot of cases can be brought down subconsciously to a confirmation bias, which is where we have a tendency to interpret a favor and recall information that confirms or supports one's prior beliefs or values. So you're going out to a man who's unresponsive on the street on a Friday night in Temple Bar. Your brain will automatically go to one thing or maybe only one of two things. And then you will try and anchor that bias, which means that you take that information and you basically try and make that influence your decisions on scene. So these things can have a huge effect on our safety. Viv, I believe, was doing a little bit on violence. Would you like to talk about that on violence against crews? Yeah, Kev. Unfortunately, violence is towards pre-hospital staff is something that appears to be becoming more common every year, be that verbal or physical abuse. Sometimes involves patients being violent, family or friends of patients being violent, or just passers-by getting involved. Obviously, a big influence of that would be drugs and alcohol, and unfortunately, mental health issues are big factors for these occurrences as well. What I would say is pre-hospital providers can be very good at reading the room, not only do they observe the logistics of the room, they observe those in the room as well and can gauge the mood fairly quickly. Again, their gut feeling kicks in and they pretty much know when they should leave before something kicks off. And you will find that most of us, we never let ourselves get backed into a room and we always have kind of an escape plan or an exit plan. We're constantly reassessing. It's like the scene at an RTC. The dynamics and the safety in a home is something that can change quickly as well. Now, when I was doing a bit of reading in 2016, there were 47 cases documented violence against paramedics. And in February 2020, it was reported that there were 114 assaults reported in the previous two years. So whereas, again, as Stephen was saying, a lot of the research is US based, assaults come in at number five on the, the top causes of paramedic injuries and loss of work. The first one would be overexertion and body motion would be number one in the list for paramedic injury. Number two on the list is exposure to harmful substances. Number three is slips, trips and falls or loss of balance. And number four is motor vehicle incidents. And in at number five, as I was saying, is our assaults and violence, which which is sad, really, even though they seem to be on the increase. It's still probably the, the least popular cause of paramedic injury. Well, that's that's a you know, it's, it's shocking that it's in the in the top four of injuries pre-hospitally. But there are a lot of things that we can actually do to combat this. 
So the first thing is to be aware of how the family and patient are probably feeling. And people don't normally call for an ambulance because they're having a good day. Patients in the family can, depending on their condition or their previous experience, or if this is the first time that this particular complaint has ever happened to them, they're going to feel stressed, they're going to feel vulnerable, and they're going to feel afraid. So what can we do? Well, the HSC's National Healthcare Communication Programme has recognised the effect of PPE as a barrier on communication, and that is very, very adaptable to our setting. What they use is a thing called the Calgary-Cambridge Framework, which has two objectives, providing structure to the patient interaction and then building the relationship and rapport between the clinician and the patient. So they break that down into a couple of steps. So the first one is initiating the succession, building the relationship, gathering information, providing information, planning, and closing the session. So... If we broke that down or we modified that for pre-hospital, what does that mean? So initiating the sessions, which is the pre-arrival. So we prepare, we do a, an I'm safe checklist or a CUS, which is stands for concern, uncomfortable, unsafe and stop. And this between you and your partner can actually lead to you being conscious and aware of how you're feeling. And you might be able to then affect how you interact on scene in a, in a much more conscious, self-aware kind of way. The next thing is identifying the reasons for the consultation or the call. So we read the MDT. Be aware that this is where confirmation and anchoring biases can be at play. And if you're particularly tired, you misinterpreted the information or the information is fairly limited and you go down a particular road that can actually lead to a breakdown in communication on scene with the patient. Something that I do, my students do, and anybody I work with, is we try and do a, no matter how silly the information is on the MDT screen, we try and find two or three serious conditions that may harm the patient or may kill the patient with the information that we already have, no matter how silly. What that does is it resets your mind. It allows you to reframe your prejudgment of the actual scene so then the next thing is we get on scene and it's about building the relationship so obviously enough now we don't wear or we can't really wear our name badges on our gowns and, and things like that so we have to be clear on who we are so we clearly identify ourselves my name's kevin this is viv how can we help you today that kind of thing we try and get ourselves into good light because one part of our face that they can still see is our eyes. So we try and make good eye contact with the patient, be in good lighting that they can actually see that, and then bring the patient along with what you're doing. So explain everything that you want to do, talk to the patient about the condition that they have, talk about your thought processes through that, and you, you would start to develop a relationship with the patient. And once you verbalize that, once you've tried to get people on scene, you're not going to be completely able to mitigate the, the non-verbal disability in a way, but you will be able to get, potentially keep the scene stable and safe. Yeah, so Kevin or Viv, do you think the number of assaults on paramedics that are noted there, do you think that's a true representation of the numbers? Or do you think they're higher or lower? 
uh, in real life? Well, again, when I was reading some of the papers that were US based as well, they were actually saying that the instances of assaults are probably higher because a lot of them don't really get reported if somebody isn't injured or requires medical treatment afterwards. So mm. I'd imagine it's a lot higher than that. And that's what the paper was suggesting also. I think it's a lot higher as well. If we go into, say, a residential home or a nursing home and the elderly patient with dementia slaps your hand away or pinches you as you're trying to help them or something like, yes, technically that's assault, but we're not reporting that. So and if you were to report it, sure, we the paperwork would be out the doors, you know. So I think the number of assaults we see and I've seen reported in the research, I'd say could be maybe double it, if not uh, treble the amount, but we're using it as only a serious assault and not the accidental assault, for want of a better phrase, by the elderly patient in the nursing home with dementia. Yeah, I think that that's probably true. Like, I mean, when you think about it, most people, I think 98% of the people who actually ring for an ambulance aren't actually ringing an ambulance because they're bad people wanting to hurt us. So when you do take into account, like you said, dementia, medical conditions that can actually affect people's behavior and their train of thought, could actually, you, you would have far higher instances of assault. But equally, that also means that we also have to be kind of aware and more self-aware of what we could be going to, thinking about those kind of risks and to discussing them with your partner that you can actually mitigate them so you can actually interact with the patient as safely as you can. I think ambulance control do a fair enough job as regards looking after our safety, informing us going there's a lot of noise in the background and a lot of panic in the background and it doesn't sound right. And they let us know that and they'll kind of say, hang on for the guards to arrive because we've just we're just not happy with that. And that has happened quite a number of times, which we appreciate because there's nothing worse than rocking up in a scene and it's complete pandemonium there. But that wasn't picked up on initially. So thanks for tuning in to our very first podcast. We enjoyed recording it. We do promise the next time Kevin will get his numbers right. Please tune in next month, hopefully for our next podcast. Yeah, I bought a calculator there. Take care and good night and stay safe. Good night. All information recorded is solely the opinion of the presenters and their guests. They do not represent the views of the employers nor associated with any establishment or service provider. Content is not to be taken as medical advice and should not affect established guidelines and protocols. Thank you for listening. Take care.